Hello and welcome to the Gridiron Show. He did it again. Seven Super Bowl rings in 10 Super Bowl appearances. I mean, where does this rank for his legacy? Where does it put him in the all-time sporting legacy? Does the fact that he did it with a new team make Tom Brady even more special than he already was? We will break down Super Bowl 55, the mistakes made by the Kansas City Chiefs, the inability to adjust to those mistakes from the Kansas City Chiefs, some poor officiating, but inevitably some brilliant defensive play, Brady showing up in the right moments, and uh, yeah. A blowout. It was a shame, but it was what it was. We're also going to hear from Super Bowl winning running back of Super Bowl 49, Shane Vereen, who will tell us all about being in a locker room with Tom Brady and has a fantastic story about Rob Gronkowski's touchdown from that game. And we'll take a look forward at what next season and this offseason could look like for these two teams. Uh, delighted to say that we're joined by, and it is an all-star cast today, because not only do we have Gridiron Editor Liam Blackburn. How are you doing, sir? Very good, mate. Features editor Simon Clancy, who is always here and soldiering on. Greetings. Dragging himself out of his hiding hole because now he can hold aloft a seventh ring that he will claim as one for a team he supports because Brady is there. Uh, the founder of Gridiron Magazine, Matthew Sherry. Uh, Matthew, how are you, buddy? Good, well. Oh, come on. You can give me more <laughs> than that. I, I feel I'm delighted that the Bucks won. I'm delighted for Brady. It's not. It was a different feeling to watching your own team in the Super Bowl, very obviously, on Sunday. It was a bit weird as well. I mean, watching them connect for that first touchdown pass and seeing the uniform was like, it's been slightly strange all year, but it was probably the most bizarre moment of all. Of all. But yeah, I'm delighted for him. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think every, there's been a lot of people talking about Patrick Mahomes as if he's going to be the greatest of all time, and that will just happen. And I've said all along, like, you know, nobody would have thought that Brett Favre would only win one ring after he won his first Super Bowl. And actually, he lost the next year to an aging quarterback, John Elway, never never won one again and never played him one again. So I think people have been a bit early on that talk. Russell, ultimately, I think, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, exactly. It's the, same story with, it's the same story with Wilson as well. But I think people were early on that talk. And, and, you know, history will remember the fact that Brady beat Mahomes in the Super Bowl. They won't remember how it happened and that, minutiae of the game and I'm pleased for him that I, I don't think anybody will ever challenge him I, I really think you'd struggle to get anybody who'll do this again it's it's gone so far beyond being unique and yeah it's 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 crazy I mean and and in the wider sporting context I think it might be that his collective career might be the greatest career in the history of sports it's it's insane in terms of his impact on the team, it's something that obviously came up time and time again in conversation through the week, speaking with players, coaches. And I got a little bit kind of tired of the narrative that he kind of single-handedly came in and, you know, turned Accrington Stanley into an FA Cup finalist or something. This was a very talented team prior to him coming to town, but the clear lift that he gave them, the, the change after there was meant to be that golf game between Arians and Brady when it wasn't looking good five or six weeks into the season, when the offense wasn't coming together, they weren't allowed to have the golf game because the NFL nixed it, but they did come together. They did figure things out. They got on the same page. And I think it was, it showed a lot that even though, you know, 46, 47, if I'm including the draftees because they weren't people Brady brought in, that's Jason light who deserves the nod for those in a great draft class. It was, but it just had to be in the Super Bowl that the, all the touchdowns came from Leonard Fournette, from Rob Gronkowski, from Antonio Brown, who they sold their soul to bring onto their team, that it just showed that it was kind of the Brady Bunch, Liam, who went and actually 
won the game on the offensive side of the ball and we'll get to the defence, don't worry, for people who think we're disrespecting it. It's interesting in terms of, I think particularly from the regular season meeting, there was a lot of adjustments from the Buccaneers on, on both sides of the ball and the Chiefs, there didn't seem to be any adjustments, even when it was blatantly obviously it was going horribly wrong. I think the week 13 buy for Tampa was massive because having a buy that late in the season isn't normally advantageous to a team, but the fact that they were able to work things out. And, you know, you, you say in this game, Gronk was huge. The running game was huge. Ray had a big game. I think the wide receivers only combined for about 64 yards, even though this is Bruce Arians' his, his system. It it was indicative of, of what Brady wants to do in that system. And it has been a, a narrative this week of how much he's come in there and, and transformed the culture. And as he admitted himself this week, they were a team that were ready to win. You know, they were one boneheaded Jameis Winston play away from making the, the playoffs last year. They've added in some, some veteran pieces this year, but I think it's just the whole, the whole culture that Brady brings that, you know, winning mentality. There was a great story from Levante David. I think he said that one of the players was, you know, crying after the NFC championship game and Brady sort of turned around and went, what the F are you crying for? We're, we're not done yet. And that kind of thing. And that, that permeates through the whole team as much as it is maybe a, a worn narrative. The players do buy into that. Players do believe in it. And when you've got a guy there who's been there and done it so many times, to, to have that guy at the centre of what you're doing is is huge. Yeah, what a wonderful guy. Huh? <laughs> I, am, I mean, I'm, I'm pleased for him because he's finally drawn level with Otto Graham, uh, you know, as the winningest quarterback in, in, in history. But, you know... All bullshit aside, I, I think he, he's... Um... I can't, can I just say, the moment you said that, Matthew Sherry took himself off mute. It was a beautiful moment to see on Zoom the frustration spread across his face. And I mean, was, I mean, it's, it's, the it's, little it's red one, microphone just disappeared. It's, it's, it's here we go, here of, we go. I love Otto Graham and the story. It's one of the biggest misnomers in sport in that before those championships came with a league of eight teams. Seven championships is seven championships, buddy. I mean... yeah. You know, he's one of the greats. Uh, I, I, love, I love the nod. Both teams well, were in the league. There's nothing I hate more than the fact that there's a stat going around now that Brady's won more Super Bowls than any team. Well, he hasn't won more championships than any team. The Packers have won 13, and it infuriates me that the Patriots and Steelers get tabbed as being the most winningest teams when they're not. Green Bay are. Even even so, when Green Bay fans lay claim to that, you do think to yourself, "Yeah, but what have you done for me lately?" It's like you know, you're the smallest dwarf. I mean, I mean, the tallest dwarf (laughs) either. But yeah, I mean, look, the job he's done is amazing. It's uh, it's clear that he brings something that you know is very rare in sport. You know, and you only see with the Tiger Woodses, the Serena Williamses, the ultimate, the Michael Johnsons, the elite of the elite, which he obviously patently is. Matt and I have had a number of interesting debates, notably walking around the streets of Chicago and New Orleans about whether or not, I don't believe that Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time in terms of ability to throw the ball. You know, he is not the best pure passer of all time. He is clearly the greatest leader, the greatest, you know, everything that goes into being the most important player of a team. He has that, that X factor. Uh, Lieb just talked about that story with um, Levonta David. Peter King had a story yesterday where... um, where he said that Devin White had um, had been really pissed off that he hadn't made the Pro Bowl. And, and Brady was like, dude, you know, there's a bigger bowl at play. You know, what? get your head out of the, the clouds. We're going for one bowl. It's not the Pro Bowl, mate. Those sorts of things. You can see the effect that it's had. You listen to Antoine Winfield and, and the younger guys, Carlton Davis, the effect that he's had on them. And go, just going against him in practice day after day. You know, Winfield had a couple of interceptions early on in training camp or the truncated sort of training camp that they had and you know you could see that that sort of thing g's up a young unit and you know we talked about it with Kaylin on the very first show that we did about whether or not Tampa Bay had a really good team but were that was that secondary going to be able to 
to handle the teams that it might come up against in the NFC throughout the season. And clearly going against somebody like Brady, not just his ability as a quarterback, but also his mentality really helped them. And um, yeah, I mean, hats off to him. To win one is difficult enough. To win seven is is just beyond the realms. And you look at it, you know, they've got a big decision to make with Shaq Barrett and with, with Chris Godwin in terms of whether or not they can franchise one and, and sign the other. But you'd make a pretty strong argument that he'd come back and win it again next year. You can't, especially in an NFC where you think, well, you know, there's not that many great teams. The thing with Brady is, and and I said this to Liam on the phone yesterday, and it's the big takeaway from me having watched basically every game he's ever played, is he just finds a way to do it. And there was a great, Mahomes had those two silly incompletions in this game. And I saw a debate going around on game day of the, the greatest incompletion ever. One of the greatest incompletions ever that sums up Brady is in the Giants Super Bowl, he threw a pass to Randy Moss 75 yards in the air that was overthrown that could have won them that game at the end. And I agree with Sai. He definitely, from a skill set perspective, is not the greatest quarterback of all time. You know, you look at Mahomes and the stuff that he can do, and from a physical skill set perspective, it's just insane. And he's like Rodgers on crack, you know. Like when, it's, when it, it's that, just... that throw where he is parallel to the floor, yeah, diving to his right and flicks his wrist and move, the ball goes 37 yards in the air. And you're just like, what is that? That's... Yeah, which, which well, the, th- the thing with Brady is... I was going to say, which came one play after he did that equally absurd throw, which nearly found Byron Pringle in the end zone. Yeah. When he needs to, he just finds a way. And it's I've never seen anything like it. Like, dude... The other Giants Super Bowl, the Patriots are in a fourth and 20. And he just converted it to Dion Branch down the left sideline, had two Hail Mary shots. And it's just that ability to find a way to deliver what he needs to deliver on that game. You look at the Rams and Eagles Super Bowls, the way the Eagles was probably his best Super Bowl performance. But he had to score 45, 50 points to stay in that game against the Rams. Doesn't have that great a game, but makes the throws when he needs to make them. He just, he's he's got that weird timing, I guess, in everything, you know, the timing of him deciding to leave the Patriots when a roster as good as this Tampa Bay one was was available to join was great timing. He just he just has timing in every sense. And, and I assume it's, that we're a weird one. I assume that we're now it was clearly all Brady and not much to do with Belichick. I mean, absolutely. We will have time. yeah Shane Vereen's thoughts on Dan, Danny Amendola's comments regarding that uh, later in the show. Brady won a Super Bowl. Belichick couldn't make the playoffs and and somehow made Cam Newton worse than he was. (laughs) I mean, just saying. We'll see. Story's still to be written. Just saying. (laughs) Right, anyway, let's talk about the game itself and the focus from the Bucks' perspective. Obviously, the story is Brady, but... Really, the story is Todd Bowles and that defense who started the season so well, the first eight, nine, ten weeks were were absolutely superb, seemed to drop off somewhat. Still weren't necessarily brilliant against Washington, but the last two road games in the playoffs and then in this game were absolutely sublime. And you can talk about the fact that they were going up against the backup tackles and we'll talk about the Chiefs' complete inability to make any kind of adjustment as the game went on and clearly keeping five in protection was a huge mistake. But... It really highlights that Bowles not getting those head coaching opportunities was was silly this offseason and just how much he's managed to wring every little bit of quality, Liam, out of that defence. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think, that, as I said, going back earlier, the, the difference between the two teams when they played earlier in the season and the adjustments that Bowles made. You know, Bowles is a blitz-happy coach. He wants to blitz as much as any defensive coordinator in the league. 
He played a lot of single high safety in that first game, particularly in the first half against Tyreek Hill and got absolutely burnt repeatedly. Hill had three touchdowns, 200 yards. They changed things up the second half and then it was just dink and dunk to Travis Kelsey. So they looked at that and said, right, we're, we're up against a, a battered offensive line. They're playing two backup tackles. They're missing the, the starting guard from last year as well. If we can get pressure with four, we can sit everyone else back in coverage and dictate the game from that perspective. And from the Chiefs' perspective, they they knew coming into this game that that was the, the blueprint for the way Buccaneers were going to win this, was Barrett, Pierre-Paul on the edge, Sue and um, Vita Vea causing problems up the middle, and then two high safety, which I think they did on Vich at about 80% of coverages, which is like a, a record high for balls over the past five seasons. And yeah, I mean, you talk about the Chiefs making adjustments during the game. The Chiefs should have adjusted to this pre-game. They knew what the situation was going to be. They knew exactly the blueprint for the, buc- the way the Buccaneers' defence was going to win this game. And it, it just went out exactly as they planned. You know, Tampa Bay got up early. They were able to run the ball on offence and then set those pass rushes off. And it was exactly the way they wanted to play it. Can I just tackle four sort of hot take issues? One was that I thought the Chiefs' game plan was atrocious. The lack of ability to establish any running game, especially with two deep safeties, was was astonishing. I think that no matter how they talk about it, I think the Britt Reid situation clearly threw a cloud over. I mean, it's a horrendous situation and you know, feel incredibly sorry for the family and for, you know, you hope that those girls pull through. But you can't think that that won't have had an effect on Andy Reid just generally because he seemed like he was coaching in a complete funk. I think one of the points that people made sort of during and after the game was that this is why teams should draft offensive linemen. Well, it's not really. I mean, your first overall pick, left tackle, Torres Achilles the week before, and your best right tackle in the league, Mitch Schwartz, has been out all season. It's nothing to do with drafting offensive linemen. It's just an unfortunate situation where you can only have so many offensive linemen on the roster. You can't keep just picking first-round picks and offensive linemen in the hope that you know, if somebody goes down, you've got next man up. And then they drafted Lucas Niang last year in the second round, and, and he sat out the year, he opted out. So... I found that whole argument sort of slightly ridiculous. And had another offensive lineman opt out because he wanted to be on the front lines of the COVID yeah. battle. I mean, like it's it's a lot of circumstances that yeah. get us to this point. That isn't a criticism of their personal moves. Like I love Jim Nagy, but I heard Jim Nagy say, you know, this is the reason why you should be drafting offensive linemen, and and I'm not sure that is the reason why you should be drafting offensive linemen. Four incredibly difficult and different circumstances happen to take probably four of your five best offensive linemen off the field. It's, you know. I can't even think what the fourth one was, but it was, you know, it was equally as, uh, maybe equally as angry as those three have done. But just overall, I just thought the Chiefs' game plan was just, and especially every time that Clyde Edwards Hilaire got the ball, he seemed to be picking up chunk yardage. I mean, you drafted in the first round, just let him run the ball down people's throats. That's especially when you've got those two safeties playing so deep down the field. And until such point as they bring a safety up into the box, then you can hit them over the top. That's how you get around Todd, Todd Bowles' game plan. I just thought the game planning was really poor. The problem for the Chiefs was that they kept that five-man protection. I think it was 92 93% of the snaps in this game. They didn't bring in extra players to block outside of, apparently, the play that Liam was talking about. They didn't do it with regularity. They didn't do anything to counteract what they were doing. They didn't run the ball more. And when they did run the ball, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire looked good. And for a coaching team that has Eric Bieniemy, who everyone is angry, didn't get a head coaching job, and Andy Reid, who... So no, crit- no, no criticism of Eric Bieniemy, though, I would say. That's... that's- how do, you, Nobody... how do you not have any criticism of, of the offensive coordinator when the offense didn't? Oh, but but that's 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 the point. I don't see any criticism. Like I, I oh right, okay. I thought you were saying we well. shouldn't criticize him. I no, was annoyed that I, we I, weren't. Yeah, I mean, I, it frustrates me because I don't think it helps the cause when people pretend that Eric Bieniemy not having a head coaching job is the biggest outrage in 
human history when, again, as I've said repeatedly on this, he doesn't call players. He's not really the offensive coordinator, Andy Reid is. So if you're going to hold the enemy up as this harshly done to candidate, and actually, if you compare the two who were coaching against each other the other night, Todd Bowles definitely deserved another opportunity. Liam can talk about the Jets better than I can, but he had the worst personnel man I've ever seen as a general manager outside of Matt Millen, probably, for several years. And that Jets roster was a disgrace and actually performed really well in the first two years and ultimately got beaten down by the situation. So Todd Bowles, for me, it's a fair argument. But, you know, if you're going to harp on and on about the enemy, you've got to criticise what was genuinely the worst game plan I've seen from any side of the ball in the Super Bowl. It was diabolical. Because it was so predictable, as we say, we knew it was going to be too deep. We knew the offensive line problems. So your game plan has to be built around those issues, and it wasn't. I'll just pick up on something you said earlier on, Will, as well, about Todd Bowles and the hiring process. I do think that that was the fourth point I was going to talk about. It feels to me like a lot of whataboutery when it comes to these sorts of things. You know, I if you if you a team that's fired a coach either the week before the end of the season or on Black Monday, I don't think a team should necessarily be forced to wait six weeks to hire yeah. a candidate you've got a senior you know in a normal year you've got a senior bowl you've got to prepare for free agency you've got the combine you've got to start going out and seeing pro days all those sorts of things the the rule needs to change to allow these candidates to be able to be seen before you know the end of the super i don't blame a team like the new york jets or whoever else it was who's hired uh, you know, the falcons or whatever who's hired a new coach having to wait six weeks to speak to Bayern or to that, that's not the way it should work. You, you know, you're missing out a massive chunk of the most important part of the non-football playing season. Three all-star games, the build-up to the combine and the build-up to free agency, and you'll you'd be way behind everybody else. I just think that's ludicrous to think the team should just wait until the Super Bowl has been over to speak to Byron Leftwich, Eric Byron, or, or Todd Bowles, or whoever, you, you know, Harold Goodwin, whoever. That, to me, is just an absolute non-starter. There has been that conversation as well. I've heard it a lot, this idea that they should push the hiring process. I think if you push the hiring process beyond the end of the Super Bowl to try and make those adjustments, you have to literally say, right, and as part of that, the senior bowl moves back, free agency moves back, the draft moves back. You have to literally take the whole off-season and push it back a month because otherwise you're just creating an unfair situation for a team that, in theory, is already bad because their head coach is leaving. But back to the Chiefs being bad. For me, as much as we're saying, sitting here and saying the blame should be apportioned to Reed and the blame should be apportioned to the enemy. And I think you're right that the situation involving Brett Reed probably was hanging over them as well. There were so many occasions in the first half where they could have got back into this game and either officiating or bad decisions did come against them. This idea that they were blown out and deserved to be blown out. It could have been a very different game if, say, the Tyron Matthew pickers stood or the... Yeah, it also could have been a very different game if the Bucks had scored from the one-yard line and if they'd have done anything offensively in the second half that was like their game plan originally. I, I think the Bucks could have blown them out by a lot more. It felt like in the second half it was just, we've won the game, let's run the ball on first and second down and try and bomb one down the field on third down. I think if they'd have been more methodical... I, I don't think it was a close game in any way, shape or form. It no, felt no. like... Even the drops were just were miracle Mahomes plays. You know, the Bucks had control of the game on every single drive. And I feel like there were some calls that went against them. But similarly, there were some things that I think it was probably a touchdown that the Bucks scored, to be honest. I think if you had Hawkeye, the ball probably crossed the line. So, yeah, I, I don't think it was a close game. I, I love Andy Reid, but it was coaching malpractice. It was really, really bad. The turnover, the interception was a horrendous call. You got to let those guys play. That was that. That was not a penalty for me. And I thought the um, 
the pass interference on Matthew, the one that hit the where the ball just hit the back of the wall before it, it didn't even bounce. That was clearly uncatchable. I, I, you know, to me, that was two pretty bad calls. You know, and the Matthew interception, how you overturn that, I, I thought that was a staggeringly bad call. It was, but it does it change the game. I mean, you, you no, get the ball at, at, at your own 30 and you, you couldn't convert in the red zone all night. You never scored a if, touchdown. If Harry Kill catches that ball that hits him in the face, which he should have caught, it's a different game, you know, from that point. So, you know, I think the Bucks clearly won, but I thought, you know, KC just didn't help themselves. They made mistakes in terms of their coaching and they made a lot of on-field mistakes as well, whether that's in protection, whether that's drops. Kelsey had two or three drops. You know, in a big night, but Kansas City just didn't show up. And for a team that won a Super Bowl last year, I thought that was probably the most staggering thing. There's a couple of the, the penalties. like a team who thought they had to turn up and they'd win. Yeah, there's a couple of the penalties. I mean, the offside one on a field goal, which is just yeah. well, the next play they throw the first touchdown to Gronkowski, you know, that kind of thing. The, even the special teams, you know, in, in the first quarter, there was a couple of shanked punts, which put them back field position-wise. But as you said there, Matt, it was a case of, okay, this is our plan. This is this is the way it's going to work. If it doesn't work, then Mahomes will just run around and create some magic like he normally does. And there was no real adjustments. There was no putting extra men in to protect. There was no, like, moving the pocket kind of. They tried one screen pass in the first quarter that Devin White completely blew up, and then that was it. And there was just no way of, of helping an offensive line, which he knew was going to struggle going into this game. They've had seven really bad quarters in two Super Bowls. Because they weren't good for most of the last year's Super Bowl. It was just some magic from Mahomes at the end. Maybe it was six and a half quarters. But I think it's interesting that. I think part of it is that they're too reliant on Mahomes to just do crazy stuff. And there's a ceiling to that in the biggest games, ultimately. Just on that point of penalties costing teams... George Kittle doesn't get that offensive pass interference, which is one of the worst of all time that I've ever seen, then I think the Niners go on and win that Super Bowl. Just saying. Just saying, George! Right, anyway, let's uh, let's hear from former Super Bowl winning running back Shane Vereen, uh, who won Super Bowl 49 uh, with Tom Brady. A little bit about Brady, about the legacy, about that Gronkowski touchdown as well, and we'll come back and, and take a little look forward to the offseason. Can one man, even if that man is Tom Brady, make that much of a difference to an organisation? As everyone had been claiming all week, Tom Brady had done in Tampa Bay. Yes, um, but in my opinion, it has to be a quarterback um, in order to make that type of change that fast. Um, And the reason I say quarterback, because if it was like a Ray Lewis or an Ed Reed, a big defensive talent, yeah, they could will their team and they could stop defenses or stop offenses and, and be a big force on the defensive side. But I feel like the quarterback has the most control over what's going on in the game. So when that guy is another coach on the field, when that guy is more motivated and the biggest leader on the team, I think the improvements can happen a lot faster, exponentially faster. I mean, as we're seeing one year in, in Tampa Bay and and he's already there. I mean, it's it's when I was when I was watching the um, the NFC Championship game, and throughout the game, I was like, okay, eventually Green Bay is going to wake up. Eventually, they're going to get stopped. Eventually, but Tampa just kept going and kept making stops on defense, kept scoring on offense. Um, I was just thinking, is Tom about to go to another Super Bowl? <laughs> like, is, like, are we like, am I in the Matrix? Like, is this really, really happening in his first year after getting bounced out of the playoffs in the first round last year or in the divisional round last year? I mean, 
it's truly remarkable. And uh, I think I tweeted last week or two weeks ago, we just need to sit back and just watch and just enjoy this because there's going to be a time when uh, there's no more Tom Brady throwing footballs. And I think this is a very, very special moment in, in sports history, not just football, but sports history. When you came into New England as a rookie, a second round pick, and, and you had those those first times that you met Tom, what are your memories of of what he was like as a person meeting him for the first time? Um, I was shocked and surprised how um, humble he was um, when I first met him. You know, I, the conversations that we had weren't really about football. It was about me. Like he wanted to know about me and I, like someone of that stature taking the time out of his day to, to come over and talk to me. It really, it really meant a lot. And then you see how he acts on the football field practice or games. He has such a intense competitiveness that I really, really admire. And when your quarterback leader somewhat of a coach on the field with you is that intense and that competitive it's easy to get behind that kind of guy was it fun as well because I mean and I think that Danny Amendola's comments from earlier this week have been overblown he's a guy who when he left New England he left under a bit of a cloud so you have to take that into account what did, what did he say exactly he essentially said I, that Tom Brady going to uh Tampa Bay and doing it again whilst New England was struggling proved that the Patriot way was more about Brady than it was about Belichick. Okay. Hmm. I, I, I can see, I can see how you can see that. Of course, a statement like that is getting it taken out of context. Um, and rightfully so. <laughs> that was kind of, that was kind of rough there, Dola. But, um, at the, at the same time, I understand what he was saying. Um, and, I've never been one to say it was Brady or it was Belichick. I thought they were a match made in heaven. What Belichick preached is aligned very, very tightly to what Brady preached and who he was as a person. Um, So, you know, yes, they both had a lot to do with it. Who had more to do with it? I think, I don't know. I think it, it just depends. I mean, Brady's got so many weapons on offense he didn't have that his last few years in New England. Um, even when I was there, we had weapons, but nothing like the amount of weapons he has in Tampa. And so uh, I think the reason why we were able to win, though, when I was there is because we worked very, very well as a team, as a whole. And was it fun? That locker room was unbelievably tight. I'm still uh, close with guys that, was in that, that were in the locker room with me. Um, I still talk to them weekly. I just had lunch uh, a couple of weeks ago with, with Julian Edelman and um, winning is fun. I'm just going to put it that way. Winning <laughs> is fun. And uh, yes, there, yes, you do deal with a lot of other things that come along with that. But I will say that that locker room made it all worth it. The thing is, and you say it, it's winning is fun is the key because some have yeah. questioned, you know, has it been fun in New England this year? Has it been tough? Well, of course it's tough when your organization have had winning seasons 19 out of the last 20 years and yeah. suddenly you're, you know, having a losing record, not going to the playoffs, finishing third in your division. Like those aren't fun things. That's not fun, especially <laughs> when you're accustomed, when you're accustomed to, to a certain type of winning, not just winning, but like, going deep into the playoffs, going to Super Bowls, where then you then you miss the playoffs. That's not fun. But that's not fun for any team. I don't care who you are. That's not a fun season. I've been on teams where I, my first four years, we went to four straight AFC Championship games. 
never went to another championship game once I left after that, uh, after those four years. So, yeah, I went to the playoffs after that, but it's not fun losing no matter where you are. Talk to me a little bit about Super Bowl week itself, back in Super Bowl 49. It's obviously very different this year because of COVID and because the teams are getting to treat it a bit more like a normal week, staying in their own homes and training yeah. in their own facilities. I mean, obviously, Tampa Bay, that's even different entirely. But yeah. what are your memories of the build-up week? And, and how, as a team, how difficult is it to try and stay level so you don't peak before Sunday? Physically, you want to just make sure everything is is in tune and physically you don't want to get overexcited during those weeks of practice getting ready to go mentally i don't know i think you should i think you should ride the wave and you should feel the importance of of the super bowl of what of what it's going to be and i think you should rise to that level of of what of what that game entails i loved being around the super bowl feel that whole week um, we were in arizona at the time there's different events and and the media coverage and then you step away from that and you get to go to meetings and practice and you just get to focus in and then all that other stuff goes away and you're just worried about your game plan. You're worried about what you need to do to help your team win. It all comes with it, but I think it adds to the excitement. I think mentally you peak maybe like a couple days before the game for me. And then the and then game day, I woke up, did my normal game day routine. And before you knew it, we were holding up a Lombardi trophy. So at this point in the interview, we spent some time discussing matchups in this game, a third down running backs, Leonard Fournette, and some other bits and pieces. But it turned our attention to the Rob Gronkowski con- uh, touchdown over KJ Wright in Super Bowl 49 when Rob Gronkowski split out wide, got that matchup on the linebacker, and you're just thinking to yourself, that's the matchup you want, that's the matchup you should be exploiting in that play. And uh, yeah, he had a great story on it. It's funny because even in that game, when we when we put that play in, we we're either going to get one of two things. We we're either going to get just like a basic zone coverage or KJ Wright's going to go out with Gronk. And there was a whole play going on on the other side of the field. But I think it was Coach McDaniel said, if KJ Wright and Gronk are one-on-one, we're throwing the ball out, outside. <laughs> uh, and so I remember being in the backfield and uh, – Gronk went out, and I saw KJ Wright go with him, and I'm like, oh, six. <laughs> I, didn't not- run, I, didn't, I didn't even run my route. I just, I just helped protect. I had a route. I was supposed to protect and then leak out to the side. I didn't even leave. <laughs> I just I just stood it. I was like, well, he's going to throw it to him, so I might as well make sure he gets the ball off. And, yeah, and it was a touchdown. But I remember that very vividly. It's a, that's a down off for me. That's what you're saying. Here is a down yeah. off. I can take. I'm not saying the pass blocking is a down off, no, but you know exactly. what I mean. I just uh, know the the priority of the play wasn't me. Super Bowl winning running back of Super Bowl 49, Shane Vereen, spoke to him uh, last week ahead of the Super Bowl. Uh, he was one of those who said, don't bet against Brady. We all should have listened, shouldn't we? So many. I reckon of all the people I spoke to last week, I haven't tallied the numbers. Maybe I'll go back and do it. I'd say 85% plus of people picked the Chiefs last week. So uh, so there we go. Uh, let's uh, take a little look forward into this offseason. The offseason questions for both of these teams, Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, let's start off with the Bucks, the roadblocks potentially to them being back here again. The big questions for them, as mentioned by Simon in free agency, are going to be Shaq Barrett and Chris Godwin. 
And I think Shaq Barrett, Shaq Barrett's almost, I think he's one shy of being a sack a game over the last two seasons, having never looked anything like that level of production during his time in Denver. And between that and a big Super Bowl appearance, puts himself into now that conversation of being a $20 million a season player, certainly over these veteran contracts nowadays, which are more like, they say five years, 90 million or whatever, but really three-year contracts. I think he'll be earning $20 million over the next three years. I think he'll probably be doing that in Tampa Bay. And for my money, and I want to go to Simon on this first, I think Chris Godwin becomes a casualty of that because you've got an amazing wide receiver free agency. And from what I understand, a pretty good wide receiver draft as well. Yeah, I would be the exactly the same. I think you keep the pass rusher, especially because Barrett fits so well in that system. And pass rushing in the draft, it's not strong. It's a strong class of free agent wide receivers. Although, you know, you're probably not going to sign a top line guy because if you were, you might as well keep Godwin. But I think the draft wise, I think there's a, a number of players that can come in and help the Bucks immediately. You know, especially with the downfield passing game that they that they like to employ, and there'll be a few players there who really fit. Whether that's an Amari Rogers, whether that's a Dwayne Eskridge, guys that can play out the slot but can also play outside, I think would really help uh, Brady. You look, they're not going to get their hands on a Kyle Pitts, but if the Bucks, you know, if Pitts, who's not sort of scheme specific, if Pitts was to fall a little bit, I would be absolutely looking to pull the trigger on what could be a transcendent. And you know, to me, the best tight end who's come out since Tony Gonzalez, in terms of pre-draft. You know, obviously you've had players that have gone, you know, Gronkowski, et cetera, et cetera, who've gone on to, to develop. But obviously Gronkowski fell into the second round because of the back injury at Arizona. To me, he has this, Carl Pitts has the skill set both as an inline blocker, but also as a, as a receiver down the field that you just think could make absolute hay. And whether or not you've got Gronkowski, Cameron Bray, OJ Howard to come back. I mean, you, you know, you put Pitts and Howard or Pitts and Bray or Pitts and Gronkowski on the field, you, you're just a matchup nightmare because you can't cover him with a safety you can't cover him with a linebacker. You're going to have to cover him with a cornerback, and that just opens up so many things for the rest of the offense. So, but I would absolutely be letting Chris Godwin walk if I couldn't work out a deal for him. Isn't Levante David? A yeah, I was about he to is, say, but Levante David is a free agent as well. Now he is 31 and already had that first big contract, so I think that is also a question mark for them. You've got him. No signs of slowing down though, and you know what he and White do in terms of the way that they dovetail together you know, they're essentially just playing two linebackers the whole of the time because they're just both so good. White is just a phenomenal player, but it also allows them to bring an extra defensive back into the, you know, they can play five and six defensive backs, you know, they play Whitehead and, and Winfield, but they play three corners on the field on, on almost every day. I mean, Liam would probably know more having studied the X's and O's for the magazine. But, you know, I think they're playing three, DB, three corners, pure corners on almost every snap because of the fact that David and... and um, uh, Devon White can literally go forwards, backwards, and sideline to sideline as well as anybody in the league. And I, I would, I would worry about Devon White without Levante David as well. I mean, I think White gets a lot of credit because his players look splashy because of his closing speed, but that closing speed is often in operation because he hasn't done his job in the first place. Whereas, you know, David is just brilliant. I mean, I thought David was the best player on the field on Sunday. He was stride for stride with Travis Kelsey with a regularity that is just absolutely outrageous. For a linebacker, he will be top of my It's all here as well. I mean, yeah, he, uh, he gets he gets he gets Devin White in the right positions lined up, and that's why I say, you know, Devin White's a 22 year old kid. He needs another year or two of Lavonda David next to him. And to be honest, I think the Bucks will end up with all these players back because I think that Mike Evans has apparently already offered to restructure his contract. You'd be just just to say on that, Matthew. I've been and done the maths. 
a lot of those guys have already restructured and gone forwards. You don't free up a lot of cap space. Even if you restructure your four biggest contracts on there, it only opens up another and, and 9, 10, 11 million for this Tom, season. Tom, Tom Brady and will restructure his contract well. He's only got one year left on it, so he'd have to re-sign. That's what he'd yeah, have well, to he, do. He, but just to, just to say, finish, yeah. the comparative players at the position who have signed big contracts in recent seasons, Bobby Wagner, Eric Kendricks, CJ Mosley, Danny Trevathan, You'd argue Dan Shrathen's probably not at the same level. The bigger names, Wagner and Mosley, were going for 17 million a year with a big sign-on bonus. Does he come at something closer to Kendricks, which was 10 million a year, but over five years? Maybe. I think Levante David's going to be looking for more than that, though. And I, I think it's going to be difficult to keep. I don't think they'll be able to keep all three. I genuinely don't think they can afford it under the adjusted 181 million, apparently, as it sounds, it's going to be salary cap. You know, you look at some of the other players, you know, David Gronkowski's a free agent, Sue's a free agent, yeah. Steve McClendon was a really good rotational piece, Leonard Fournette, obviously, playoff Lenny was, was superb, Antonio Brown is a free agent. You know, you go down the list, there's a number of players that are kind of important pieces, Godwin, obviously, we've talked about, but, the, you know, there's players there that they're going to want to bring back as well. I think they're, what are they, 38 million under the cap, I think I, I saw earlier on. Yeah, I was going to say the big thing with like people like Brian and Fournette, who are obviously on like minimal deals, you know, is Antonio Brown going to want to go and sign another minimal deal? Brady's probably going to want him back no matter what because he seems to love him. Fournette again should probably. Only, only to then cut him in week 13 yeah. when he is found guilty in his civil case or settles out of court. Because exactly. that's what Arians promised us he'd do. And Sue's Su- Su- an interesting one, actually, because Sue, you know, seemingly always in free agency in the past has taken the, the biggest deal on offer. He kind of re-signed because he thought this was a chance for a ring. He's now 34. Does he really want to take another minimum deal to to get a, another chance at a ring with the Bucks, Or does he want to go and have, you know, perhaps a little bit more money elsewhere? I mean, he had 1.5 sacks in this game. He was absolutely huge. You know, you take him out of that defensive line. I know they are... Shaq Barrett, if you re-sign him, and JPP are good, but is he as effective there? So there are a lot of question marks over whether they can they can re-sign everyone. I think it'll be the big three that they'll bring back. And and Barrett, you, you mentioned, I thought Barrett was a, and this isn't revision, revisionist, was an exceptional player in Denver. He was just behind Von Miller and Demarcus Ware for for that run, but he was he was sensational whenever he got on the field. And what we've seen is, and it doesn't always work like this, but one of the rare guys who's transitioned from that backup pass rusher role into the starting role and being just as effective on a per snap basis. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see them bringing the big three back. You push everything into the next year because once Brady leaves, you rip it up and start again. So you push I think everything. Three. I think they'll get two or three done. I don't think they'll be able to get three or three. I, I just don't think you, you necessarily need Chris Godwin either with the wide receiver draft you've got ahead of you. He's a great player. We, we've took. Uh, We talked about Chris Godwin, you know, uh, with Jameis Winston. We talked about how brilliant they were as a one-two punch, probably the best in the NFL last season. You know, there was plenty of reason to love the guy. I just think... And he had one... uh, Did he have one catch? One catch catch at the Super Bowl? Scotty Miller and Tyler Johnson are really good young players who you'd like to see ascend next year. So, yeah, maybe... But I agree. I think ultimately you keep those two pieces on the defensive line... Here's a name that they could take at the end of the first round. Terrace Marshall of LSU. Uh, he's six foot four. He's 200 pounds. He's a junior. He has the second. In fact, he led college football in red zone touchdowns over the past two seasons. I think that he was an absolutely perfect fit, like stepped up in the absence of Jamar Chase, sort of been in the shadows at LSU. He's big. He's long. I think he's the perfect counter to Mike Evans on the other side because of his size, his speed, his physicality. 
it wouldn't surprise me if they took. I think they'll either take a defensive tackle or a wide receiver at the back end of the first round if they let if they let Godwin walk. I think for the Chiefs, we mentioned it already, but there are those offensive line questions. As much as that was maybe an overplayed storyline in the Super Bowl because of everything that we were saying earlier, I do think that you know, does Duvernay Tardif come back? Do you need to replace one of those starting tackles? Is that the position you really need to look at for this year? Um, I I was listening to uh, one of the SI podcasts, I think it was, and they put forward that essentially that the Chiefs uh, should be heavier favourites to get back to the Super Bowl than the Bucks because they felt like they stood out above the AFC in the AFC, whereas in NFC you were going to be having the Rams with Matt Stafford are an interesting team. The 49ers, if they're healthy this year, depending on what they do at quarterback, you're going to have the Packers still look like a very good team despite that performance. Like it's going to be a harder division to come out of. That seems counterintuitive to everything we've spent the 2020 season saying, though. No, it is. I mean, the, the, the AFC is stronger than the NFC. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And one of the big powers in the NFC, the Saints are going to take a massive the, the other thing, and not just the strength of the conference, but we've seen this movie before. Teams who lose Super Bowls outside of the Patriots a couple of years ago very rarely get back there. There's always a hangover, particularly after this kind of loss. And their cap situation is unsustainable. I mean, they're not going to keep this roster together forever. They're 20 million over the cap next year. It only gets worse from here for the Chiefs. And that's going to be the interesting part of the next phase of their journey is it's great when you've got the best players on the field every time you step onto it, but that ain't lasting forever with a $500 million quarterback. So The interesting thing with the Chiefs, though, is that they're $11 million over the cap next year. All their free agents are, are eminently replaceable. There's not a single player on that list. Sammy Watkins, Alex Okafor, Daniel Sorensen, Bashaw Breeland, Damian Wilson, Demarcus Robinson, Mike Remmers, Tanoka Passan. You know, he's probably the best player there on that free agent list. What they really need is something that they can, you know, they need to bring in two really good cornerbacks. You know, they need to bolster that secondary. But it would not surprise me if they went chasing more talent at the receiver position. Do you know what I mean? There's something like Kadarius Tony of Florida, something like that. That, to me, I, I just think that's how they'll win. You know, Andy Reid and, and Eric Bainemi are going to go away and think of more ways to be creative. And whilst you've got Mahomes in his pomp, you know, Le'Veon Bell's a free agency, but, you know, you're obviously comfortable with Williams and with... um with Edward Hilaire, it would not surprise me at all if they spent another first round or a second round pick on a receiver or a downfield threat, but they really need help in the secondary. You know, Willie Gay, the linebacker, I think, the Missouri kid that they drafted last year, I think he's going to be a monster at some point, but to me, that secondary is really weak. Jarius um, Sneed played really well this year. But, yeah, he did play yeah, well, but... Had a bad game know. on Sunday. Well, in yeah, coverage, really anyway. bad. I yeah. think they need a legitimate number one corner, which they can obviously find in this draft that's someone like JC Horn of South Carolina or... Caleb Farley probably doesn't fall that far. Keith Taylor of Washington, somebody like that. I think that's really important for them because, you know, Tyron Matthew is the glue that holds that group together. But when he loses his shit like he did in the Super Bowl, I just thought that secondary just got picked apart. You know, there were a lot of sort of late switch releases that they just couldn't handle. They just didn't, you know, Daniel Sorensen was kind of all over the place. You know, Traverius Ward was in was struggling to keep up with some of the guys. Sneed didn't have a great game, as Lee, Lee mentioned. So to me, that's a, a huge area of concern. But I, I, I'm not too worried about their... You know, I just think that they're free agents that they've got that they're going to lose. They're kind of just just guys. You know, Sammy Watkins. They've still they've, they've still got twenty million to clear. I mean, if it's going to be one eighty, they've got the twenty million over at the point it starts. So they've got a clear cap room as well. I don't see that they can make really any moves to enhance the roster. And it's whether you can keep all the guys you've got. Spot Track says that they're eleven 
Eleven million nine hundred fifty. What is that? Is that where the one hundred eighty million is the new? That's, yeah, with, yeah. The adjust, that's yeah, with the adjusted yeah. cap. Not as, yeah, not as bad as I the thought. The big no. advantage that both of these two teams has got is all the coaching staffs coming back. You know, I know we've yeah. the Chiefs a little bit from the game plan in the Super Bowl, but they've been brilliant all year. You know, the enemy Spagnola, Reed, are all going to be back. Um, the Buccaneers side, Bowles, Leftwich, who's, who's really developed this year and was, you know, Arians was praising him an awful lot for the work he's done with Brady this year. Arians is going to be back. And you look at teams like the Rams, who've had their front office and the coaching staff absolutely ravaged. You don't know how that's going to affect the team afterwards, whereas these guys are both kind of set up to, to at least get back to the playoffs and do well next year. On Leftwich, really, Arians said that he wouldn't have come back to coaching if it wasn't for Byron Leftwich. And I honestly think if they went and won a second one next year with Brady and then Brady either moved on to another team or actually retired, I fully expect a Bruce Arians mic drop, I'm out of here, and either a Byron Leftwich, Todd Bowles, dream team, yeah. double head coach, or at least one of them to take over. Like, I, the, I, the, um... There's a grooming situation going on there. A good one, I mean. <laughs> I mean, Arians has a real argument now to be the, that he's the second best coach in the NFL. I mean, if you look at his year-by-year record, he's been exceptional every season he's been a head coach. He's won coach of the year twice in seven seasons, eight seasons. His down years in Arizona, he had cancer and then extracted nearly, might have been eight wins out of a roster. He's never had fewer than seven wins his entire career. Yeah, and... and that team was the first overall pick the following year when he left. <laughs> Considering they've now got a guy who's never had eight wins in his career, despite having had the most quarterback talent of maybe anyone over that eight or nine year stretch between college just, and the NFL. So, just going back to the um, just going back to the roster and the salary cap. Kansas City's money is tied up in nine players only. So Frank Clark, Mahomes, Chris Jones, Tyron Matthew, Tyreek Hill, Eric Fisher, Travis Kelsey, Anthony Hitchens, and Mitchell Schwartz. If you take all those those nine guys, Schwartz is on ten million a year, cap hit is ten million. Beneath that, Harrison Butker at three point nine million. Everybody else, and then they've got three more players on two million. Everybody else is under two million at that point. That's the entire roster. Is that a problem, though, Sai? In the fact, yeah, that it is a problem. Of- I mean, of those guys, realistically, Anthony Hitchens you could probably get rid of as a ten million cap hit. But you know, you're going to keep Clark. You probably ask him to restructure. Because his base salary is eighteen and a half million. Yeah, Mahomes' base salary next year is nine hundred thousand. You know, yeah. Chris Jones's is a million because you're kicking that cap that that can down the road. Tyron Matthew, you know, Tyreek Hill's base salary next year is nine hundred ninety thousand. You know, but Tyron Matthew fourteen and a half million, Eric Fisher eleven million, Kelsey five million, Hitchens five million. There's not a lot of wiggle room to try and get that yeah. under the. Do you know what I mean? You're going to have to. You're going to be asking Clark Mahomes. Clark, Matthew, and maybe Fisher to restructure because elsewhere, and, literally everybody else is is being paid less than a million pounds. And they can't do what the Saints have done because ultimately you, you're building for 15 years with Mahomes and you're not just kicking the can down the road as they did and as they're going to find out this off-season. So, yeah, I don't think it's as rosy as people necessarily think for the Chiefs. I think you'll have a, a Super Bowl hangover that, that always exists. And next year is a big year for them because, as you say, it's not next year, it's the year after where they're going to start running into all these problems that we're talking about. There's lots of other topics that we've not touched on uh, as we've been uh, a little lax on the podcast in the last couple of weeks. But we, I think stuff like the movement at quarterback, the Stafford Goff trade, we've got a whole off-season coming. We've got draft build-up to come. So I think we'll, we'll save our thoughts on that and do some in-depth breakdowns on what we expect from this next season. Congratulations again to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, well, 52 of you at least. Uh, and uh, the coaching staff involved. And... Uh, 
Look at his face. Wounded. Oh, I wasn't. I wasn't talking about Tom Brady. I was talking I about I the woman. Right. I was talking about the woman with the most. The, the woman, the man with the most abhorrent views on women, and yet shows zero reticence. By the way, on that point, and you can cut this out if you want, Simon, because it's totally off point. Go back and watch his press conference from last Wednesday, yeah. where somebody tries to ask him about whether or not he should have shown some reticence, should have you know, attempted to at least do something to show that he changed as a human being and essentially goes back into victim mode again. He just doubles down on that and it's the most, the most ludicrous made me so angry again. This, made me so angry over going is Giselle hugged him for about five minutes on the field. I was like, what is happening? How has this man injected himself into your lives? Do you remember because when we were very, very good at wide receiver. That's why. Do you remember when we were outside the locker room in Pittsburgh and he was his missus was out there with like nine kids and then he walked out for everybody else in that enormous fur coat that was, yeah. went down to the floor and you just thought, what a bell end you are. Having, having walked off the field like five minutes before the end of the game on his own. Yeah, exactly. Do you remember? Yeah, of course. walked down the tunnel like with, there's five minutes left of the game. Do you know what the worst thing was? Juju Smith-Schuster had a really good game, was like the, the best player in that game. He caught that long touchdown pass down the left sideline early in the game, didn't he? Smith-Schuster was an absolute arsehole in the locker room afterwards, refused to talk to anybody. And I'm certain that was Antonio Brown's influence rubbing off on him. Because Smith-Schuster was a great kid at USC. Yeah. yeah there we go. Brown we had our say on that as well. So there we go. Um, guys, it's been fun having Sherry back. Uh, we haven't wound him up about any of his ridiculous takes on social media, on uh, WhatsApp, sorry. But then again, you know. Brady's I think they've all been proven right. Literally none of them. What? I mean, Jared, Jared Goff now being desperate. I mean, that was just that was just that was the hope of a fan. But I think I said Jared Goff was two and a half years ago. His own coach has got sick of him. They've given away multiple draft picks just to get rid of him. That Save it for well. the off-season. Save it for the off-season. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, keep supporting us at Gridiron on Twitter, at UK Gridiron on Instagram. Uh, and go get the post-Super Bowl magazine, because I know Liam's been working on it incredibly hard. If you've not subscribed already, you should be. The, the pre-game read was fantastic. The post-game read will be superb. So, And, uh, and you've got Simon Clancy's draft stuff coming up as well. So, yeah, keep getting all over the Gridiron content. Uh, is. a 365 day a year league nowadays. Uh, ignore the fact there's no football for 212 days and we'll uh, we'll have a good off season. Thank you for listening. This has been the Gridiron Show. Great days, knowledge, Willie. Really.